Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Show Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I wouldn't mind retiring to a place that had a herd of llamas running around. <laughs> Across the table from me is... Uh, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I would really fancy a cup of tea and a lemon drizzle right about now. Um, and across the table from me is... I'm Trevor from the Louis Rael Library, and I'd love to go eat something in a contemporary upscale restaurant. Looks like we're all moving to Cooper's Chase. Yes! <laughs> we wouldn't do this without you. Our club is all about reading rather than solving murders, but you're welcome to be a part of it. Get in touch and let us know what you think of the books we're reading, and maybe suggest something we should read in the future. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Or you can surreptitiously slip a note under one of our doors. That works too. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Before we do in, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. How you guys doing? Good. I can't believe it's uh, been a month since we last spoke. Because it hasn't been a month. It's only been three weeks. Yeah, we're recording a little earlier than usual. Yeah. I'm reading the new Laurie Moore book. Nice. She's, the Birds of America author. Yes, one of my North favorite. America? Birds of North America. Yeah, one of my favorite authors who hasn't published anything for about 10 years. Yeah, it's very exciting. How's it going so What's far? What's the early, early thoughts? strange. There's like a, a zombie romance in it. It's, it's unexpected for Laurie Moore. Mm. Yeah. You weren't expecting zombie romance? I was not expecting zombies, no. No? Okay. No. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I just started reading an interesting book called Better Living Through Birding by Christian Cooper. Now, you may remember a couple of years ago, Shortly into the pandemic, there was a situation where a man was birdwatching in Central Park and a woman had a dog that was not on a leash and he asked her to put it on a leash because it was a leash dog area and she called the police to say that there was a black man threatening her. It kind of went viral. Well, this is a book about the man that wasn't threatening her. It's about his life and his life watching birds and growing up as a gay black man in the 1970s in Long Island. And it's so it's part bird watching book, which is great. It's also the story of this guy's life and his uh, coming of age and, and his experiences. Uh, so, yeah. Is he a, a bird scientist? An oral, he's not. He's an amateur, no? okay. an amateur birder. Oh, okay. He's just like a, our, just like our friend from Migrations. Oh, okay. <laughs> Better Living Through Birding, Christian Cooper. Hmm. So I recommend that. This is a uh, tell us about another book, uh, but it's not the <laughs> book I was going to tell you about. So it's a bonus. A bonus. Excellent. Let's dive into the book. Uh, Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. Okay, Richard Osman is um, kind of a minor celebrity in the UK. Before becoming a best-selling author, he was a producer, comedian, and game show host. Um, there's a pretty popular quiz show in the UK called Pointless. 
And he was the co-host of that. So that started in 2009. It continues to this day. It's run for 28 series. That's what they call a season. And it's had over 1,500 episodes. And Osman has been on that show from the very beginning up until quite recently when he left to focus solely on his writing. I watched a bit of an episode. The closest thing I could compare it to would be Family Feud. Um, hmm. But I only watched a very brief bit of it. But to back up, he was born November 28th, 1970 in Billerake, Essex, and grew up in Cuckfield. At nine, his father left and his mother struggled to support the family. Um, it was during school that he got his first broadcasting experience, becoming a regular contributor to a music show called Turn It Up, which was on BBC Radio Sussex. He went to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he studied American politics and sociology. He began his career as an executive producer on game shows, including the British versions of Whose Line Is It Anyway and Deal or No Deal. As mentioned at the top, he was on Pointless for 13 years. He also hosts a show called Richard Osman's House of Games, which started in 2017 and continues to this day. And there's been about 500 episodes of that one. In 2019, his first book, The Thursday Murder Club, was published. The book had sparked a 10-way publishing auction, landing a seven-figure deal, which I assume is in pounds, so that's a lot of money, and became the fastest-selling adult crime debut. Uh, received critical acclaim, becoming an international bestseller. Steven Spielberg has acquired the film's rights. His other two novels in the series, The Man Who Died Twice and The Bullet That Missed, were also big hits. And the final book in the series, The Last Devil to Die, will be released later this year. He's famously tall, standing at six foot seven. He has two children, is married to the actress Ingrid Oliver, has a cat named Liesel, and lives in West London. Hmm. There you go. Let me introduce you to the Thursday Murder Club. The club was started by Penny and Elizabeth. Penny is a retired police officer, and Elizabeth, well... Elizabeth has led a very interesting-sounding life in Her Majesty's Secret Service. Both Penny and Elizabeth had access to cold cases and would puzzle over them on Thursday mornings in the jigsaw room under the guise of Japanese opera, a discussion, to make sure they were not interrupted. Ibrahim, a dapper psychiatrist, soon joined the group, and his analytical brain proved useful. Ron Ritchie, the former union boss and socialist rabble-rouser, pretty much invited himself into the group as he didn't buy the whole Japanese opera bit for a second. The most recent member is Joyce, a retired nurse. We see things from her perspective through her journal entries. The group lost Penny before Joyce joined as she moved into the nursing home adjacent to the retirement community. And what about this retirement community? It's called Cooper's Chase, located in the lush Kentish countryside. Billed as Britain's first luxury retirement village, although Ibrahim did a bit of research and it's actually Britain's seventh and the nearest town, Fairhaven, is a regular destination for day trips from Cooper's Chase. Attractions include the shops, the seaside, and a vegan bakery called Anything with a Pulse. We get to meet Donna DeFreitas, a 20-something police officer who's recently come down from London. Still very much a fish out of water, she meets and befriends the Thursday Murder Club while doing a community outreach talk on security. The stage is set for the story to begin. While the Thursday Murder Club has dealt exclusively with cold cases up to this point, all of a sudden they are presented with a new murder, a murder of someone with ties to Cooper's chase. With no official standing, the Thursday Murder Club leverages their friendship with Donna to gain access to privileged information, but it is not a one-way street. The Thursday Murder Club has information and theories of their own, and they are willing to trade. When another murder happens and suspicion falls on the club themselves, will they be able to outsmart the killer? Well, there are two other books in the series and a fourth on the way. So, yeah, the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, they're able to. That's the Thursday Murder Club. Excellent. So, how did you find it? 
Well, I think this was maybe my suggestion uh, of a book. It was I, your suggestion. It was my, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I got the suggestion from my mom, who mm. uh, is not always the most uh, reliable uh, source of book recommendations, but I feel like for this one, she really nailed it. And I read it maybe a year ago or so, and I just recently reread it for the podcast and, uh, and, it, and read the next two in the series, too. And I'm anxiously awaiting the, the fourth one later this year. So you liked it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can elaborate a little bit. I, I love the voices that we hear. Like, like we get to hear uh, Joyce's voice most, mostly because we get to read her journal entries. She goes off on these funny little tangents, and there's just a lot. It's infused with a lot of humor and a lot of heart. I found myself laughing or just smiling to myself just throughout unexpected places. And at the same time, though, it wasn't sort of what I would call a traditional, like, cozy mystery. That I felt that it was very poignant in some parts. And, and it doesn't sort of shy away from the realities of the aging process, too, I, I found. I thought they kind of addressed the idea of senior citizens, I felt, with, with affection, but also with not sugarcoating things, too. How about you, Toby? I was so-so on this one. Mysteries are not really my thing, so I I do find it hard to recommend or not recommend because I'm just not super familiar with the genre. I like the same things that you liked. I like the humor, I like the characters, I like the setting, I like the very Britishness of it. What I didn't like, there's so many characters, so many characters, and so much plot, like so many narrative things going in all sorts of directions that I like I had to keep writing things down and forgetting like in the last 30 pages so much happens and at one point they mentioned like poor Bernard and I was like what happened to Bernard but it was just like 20 pages previous he had killed himself but I had forgotten that because there were so many other things to keep track of yeah, not, not yeah. only did like a bunch of things happen in the last thirty pages, like a bunch of things didn't happen. Like there was there was one point I, it was I thought it was a clever thing, but it was Elizabeth was talking, giving her theory to the priest, Father Mackey. But it sounds like it's Father Mackey confessing. But then you get to the very end of it, you realize it's just her kind of saying this is what I think happened. So, so the whole way along, you're like, oh, and then you're like, no, no, you have to forget that now because that's just not, not how it was. And so, and that happened a few times too. Mm -hmm. Remember with, um, Penny's, uh, husband, John in the room, he gives a cover story as to why those bones are up in the graveyard. And then, then and then when Bogdan admits to the first murder, like, is he telling the truth? See, that's the part I've rewrite it again just last night, and I was confused because he's he's in the middle of explaining his reasoning to Stephen, Stephen yeah. uh, and, and Elizabeth comes home, so he stops. So he's right in the middle of it, saying, "I covered my tracks. I took a camera." Yeah, and but, now, but that's the point at which we already know what happened. Because no, no, I didn't. I didn't know. Tell me, explain that part to me. That photograph that was left behind at the first murder scene was on Gianni's camera. So when it was he, on whose camera? Uh, Turkish, Turkish Johnny. Gianni. Oh, Turkish Johnny. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so when he murdered Turkish Gianni, he took some of his stuff, including a camera. Oh, and when he looked frame at the, him. And when he looked at the camera, he found the picture. And then later on, when he wanted to murder Tony Curran, he still had that picture. So he threw it in there to confuse things. Right, because the picture had Tony <laughs> Curran. It had Jason. It had Jason Ritchie, and it had. Um, was it that that uh, one guy? Turkish Johnny. Turkish Johnny. And did no, all, Turkish Johnny oh. was the photographer. Oh, right, right, right. right. It, had, it had that guy that started the um, the health club. 
The, yeah. the, that third friend, oh, remember? Or Steve Erkin. Yeah, the one who um, bought the gym in, owner. Uh, gave all yeah. the, the money to Turkish Johnny's stolen money so he could start the start the See, club. very convoluted. Like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. The yeah. mystery did get crazy intertwined. Yeah, now I'm a, I'm a big fan of mysteries and cozy mysteries. And, and I agree with you that this is, it's kind of got elements of a cozy mystery because, you know, it's a murder club discussing murders and they get involved with the police and somehow the police keep letting them do it, even though, you know, police would never let you do any of this stuff. They would put you in jail if you were messing with things like this. So it's got that fantasy element uh, that's common to cozy mysteries where completely unqualified people interfere with serious police investigations. But it's much more convoluted than a typical Cozy mystery, like cozy mysteries, always have dead ends and try to make you suspect people that aren't the actual criminals, so that you have to keep guessing. And it's usually really hard to guess who it actually is because they usually don't give you enough clues. But this one, like, took that and like magnified it. And then also the investigators weren't entirely unqualified. I mean, you can argue that Elizabeth was very qualified to investigate things as a former spy or whatever it was she actually did. And they actually came up with reasonable investigative routes, which, again, in most cozy mysteries that I've read is not the case. It's just someone wandering around and asking questions and getting people upset, you know? So it's kind of on a different level, but still related to a cozy mystery, it felt like. So I enjoyed myself a lot reading this one. I found those all those clues, those red herrings, very distracting. Maybe because I don't read mysteries, maybe everyone reads mysteries like this, but when I go into reading a mystery, I'm like, okay, this is a mystery, there's something for me to solve here, and so mm. I get fixated on these things, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be important, like the llamas, I was really <laughs> fixated on the llamas, I was like, this is going to be important, pay attention, yeah. so every time the llamas came up, I was like, okay, remember, the llamas, and, and in, yeah. yeah, they didn't get mentioned in the last half no. of the book at all. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. no I, I think that was the most common criticism I read of the book when I looked at reviews, was too many characters. It went on maybe a little too long, and it was very convoluted and in-depth, which is all true. I agree with those. Uh, it's not enough to make me enjoy it less, though. I still enjoyed it a lot, and I, I am going to read the other ones in the series because I've I... have heard the second one is better yeah? than the first one. That's often the case. Yeah. yeah. The second one is a little more streamlined, less yeah. characters, and uh, more of a like a on-the-run type storyline. A lot of the success of a good cozy mystery is the characters and the, the scenario, the situation. And I love these characters. They were really funny, all with distinct voices, it felt like to me, especially the main crew, you know, the, the four members of the club. Anybody have a particular favorite character out of curiosity? Oh. I like Ron. I yeah. I've, I can very much picture picture Ron with his tattoos, the mm. the you know union guy who gets really passionate about the things that yeah. he feels strongly about. Mm. Um, Joyce, I I also enjoyed because I think it's a very deliberate move to make Joyce just this very prim proper under the radar character and you kind of suspect there might be something more going on but it seems to turn out that what she is is what you get you know there's mm. there's nothing more to joyce than there seems to be although she does figure out who committed that one murder which murder well she suspected bogdan 
She suspects Bogdan? Yeah, at the very, know, I don't remember at that. At the very end, yeah. she says, um, you know, there's only one person here who's smart enough not to get caught. And that's oh, Bogdan. right. Yeah. And she's like, I'm sure he has a good reason. So she doesn't actually know, but she yeah. suspects it. Yeah. yeah. And that's a pretty good observation. And she says something like, I, I don't know if I should bring it up because it might be rude. And in any case, he's coming to fix my power shower. So I don't oh, want to do right. that, yes, you know, until he yes. comes and does that. So Yeah. Yeah. And also she agreed with his reasoning. I think so. Yeah, she was a great character too. How about you? Yeah, I, I mean, Joyce stands out just because we kind of we're sort of we're all kind of Joyce in the book, and that we are introduced to the other characters through her because she's the newest member of the group. And, and I love her sort of little asides, like when she was talking about how there are four different bins at Cooper's mm. Chase, and you know, and she's like, she's and then she starts describing them, and she's like, you know, green is for organics, and and blue is for paper uh, and glass, and as far as you know, black and yellow goes, uh, your guess is as good is mine and she but, saw someone put a fax machine into one of them yeah, yeah. And, then, and then she often will just go off and and talk about her daughter joanna and their relationship and and so so i do enjoy her but i but talk about ron i do i do love that one scene when the residents are blockading the cemetery and eventually the police do arrive and it's inspector donna and her supervisor chris hudson and and ron ritchie says are you proud of yourself and he says, well, no, I'm a 54-year-old, uh, overweight, uh, uh, divorced man. So, no, I'm not really proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, a lot of the things I thought just were, like, he wasn't a, a stereotypical tough cop. That's Chris, though. Right? Chris, Chris, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Chris Hudson, okay. yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, there was something else that he had said that... Um, uh, oh, yeah. When Joyce said, well, you're not maybe it was Joyce or it was Elizabeth. So he said, you know, we have to clear off your, you know, everyone because we need access to the road or, you know, people get arrested. And I think it, maybe it was Joyce that said, you're not really going to arrest us. And then he said, well, no, I'm not really going to arrest anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so we're back to square one. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed Ibrahim the most. I just love that kind of buttoned down, very careful, thoughtful character who's also Diversity the only one. Diversity higher. Mm. No. <laughs> uh, but you know who was in my head? I just saw Morgan Freeman. I know Morgan Freeman isn't English, but just I could see him portraying that role in a film just super well. Because mm -hmm. he's done psychiatrists and stuff before, and I just I, I see him like that. Interesting. I kind of had uh, Ben Kingsley in my head oh. uh, for, for that role, for Ibrahim. But I mean, hmm. I don't. Yeah. Well, Ben Kingsley can play anything too. He's an amazing actor, but. Uh, I'm hoping for Olivia Coleman for either Elizabeth or Joyce. She could do either. I don't know oh, Olivia Coleman. She, yeah. Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah. If they make a movie out of it, I just hope they do a good job. Cause it, well, Spielberg. Spielberg has. Yeah. But it felt it. to me like this is a book that had a visual eye to the writing. Because there were so many visual elements, like the llamas that were there, the way the residents would monitor the parking super carefully and <laughs> constantly clamp a vehicle. So many gags that were in there that would be really easy to translate to a visual medium, mm -hmm. which maybe is because he's a TV producer. You know, he has a, a visual sense that he's putting into it. Yeah, the scene that stands out for me is when Chris comes over to talk to the Thursday Murder Club and he's sitting on the couch and they're trying to deliberately make him uncomfortable. So I think they have like Ron and Joyce crowded beside him yeah. and he's holding the cup of tea and the saucer and the cake and he can't quite balance things. And yeah, yeah that was that, that was, was a good my one. favorite scene in yeah. the whole book. Yeah, because yeah. he goes in there thinking he's a, in a position yeah. of power and he's going to control the scene. And, yeah. and they were just killing him with kindness and they yeah. made him so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. And they're just tossing in asides that are perfectly in character. You know, Joyce is like, have another cake. And, yeah. and Ibrahim is, you know, detective, the, this type of cake was made in such a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lovable bunch of characters. Yeah. 
Well, you really wonder what Elizabeth has done. <laughs> yeah. I like that one mm-hmm. person asked her at one point, have you ever killed anyone, Elizabeth? Elizabeth shrugs. That was the description in the yeah. book. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't buy at the end that she would have turned in John for killing Ian. Like the fact that John kills yes. Penny, like Mercy kills Penny and yeah. then kills himself. Yeah. So he won't go to prison because Elizabeth is going to turn her best friend and his husband into the cops like that. Is she so committed to justice that she would do this? You don't think that that's uh, no? I that that bugged me. That lost like Elizabeth lost points for me there. So you hmm. think like if Elizabeth discovered that you thought it maybe would be more she would let it the character. slide. It would just she would just say this happened. I know you did this. She might confront John. Yeah, yeah, but she wouldn't be like I'm going to turn you into the police and understand that you know they're mm-hmm. going to she's going to go off and kill himself. It did seem. I mean, it's a bad term, overkill, because, I mean, the police will dig it up, they'll find the the body, and the person that did the crime is in a coma. Yeah. Well, I mean, John killed Ian. John killed Ian, but but to protect Penny. Yes. And it all seems kind of... Yeah, I guess they wouldn't wouldn't prosecute Penny. By the way, spoilers. We, we we should put that as a default thing at the front, but we do discuss the ending yeah. of the book like we just did. Yeah. <laughs> and quite often when we choose books, we, we, we're mindful of trying to choose books where there are enough available copies that, you know, our readers can read along. But for this one, the book had been out for a number of years and a lot of our listeners have probably already read it. But uh, if you go to read it now, there may be a bit of a waiting list to get it. Just yeah. we all had to kind of, uh, you know. <laughs> do things to get it. What? <laughs> I, I I do buy though that uh, Elizabeth would have turned John in. Really? Yeah, she had a very particular sense of justice. I mean, the whole investigating the thing in the first place, like going after these crimes. Her and Penny, they started it because they felt that it was bad that people were getting away with crimes and not being punished, and that's why they looked at cold cases. And even if they couldn't solve them to the point of getting someone arrested you know they wanted to know they wanted justice in some sense to be served but i mean penny killed that guy who killed his girlfriend Mm -hmm. so that's justice and then i mean ian was a bad guy already like i mean sure like but uh, john didn't have to kill him but like he he was a villain he was a bad dude and he yeah but a bad dude that you go and kill like, he was an asshole. <laughs> he had it coming. If it wasn't John, it would have been someone else. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. Like, he was killed in plain sight with a, a, maybe a, a small-ish, but not a, not a huge number of people around. So the suspects were limited. Mm-hmm. And maybe if Elizabeth didn't... Um, mind you, I guess it never did... Did it ever come out? Like, we never really see what happens immediately yeah. afterwards. Like, I don't know if they, they, with the, with they the do police... mention that it did come out. Okay. Yeah. Because then that would close that case. Otherwise, the police would still be trying to investigate Ian's murder. And I did like that scene where I think it was Ibrahim and uh, Ron were going through and rating the different people in terms oh, of yes. their uh, their suspicion and and how, you know, they had to rate themselves. And, and again, just very clever <laughs> wordplay and conversation and back and forth. But. There was a lot of wordplay. I did appreciate that. But the book does, in that sense, too, leave you with an ambiguity. Because, like you said, Elizabeth, ready to turn in the husband of her best friend, who's also a friend to her. 
and in Joyce, suspecting Bogdan, but at the same time not really wanting to do anything about that. So it kind of leaves that question there. Was it justice? Was the murder Bogdan committed justice? Was the murder Penny committed justice? And even if it was, how do you feel about extrajudicial killing? And remember, too, Bogdan killed two people. He killed um, Turkish Johnny uh, as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, earlier on, and then he was biding his time for the right time to get uh, Tony Curran. But these are all bad dudes. Like, I think that's that's also maybe part of the cozy mystery genre is, like, the bad dudes are killed. These aren't good people going about their day-to-day business. These are bad people, and they the world is better off without them. True. And I guess this is where it's also important to distinguish that cozy mysteries and mysteries in general don't necessarily follow the ethical rules that we would typically, hopefully, follow in the real world. Because... I don't think you should kill anybody just because they're monstrous assholes. That would involve an awful lot of killing. And Mm -hmm. that would just create fall-on effects. Uh, Even if you thought those were just, there would be a lot of fall-on effects. But in mystery books, they are fantasies. And so we can see that type of justice played out. And I feel like the book goes to great lengths to show just how bad of a person specifically Ian is, you know, like, (laughs) like he, he wants to dig up a graveyard. He won't buy that fair trade coffee because he doesn't (laughs) want workers paid fairly. He won't date anyone under 25. He has a gold plated glove box. Like he's a, he's a, oh, the red piano. He's like a red grand piano. Like just not a, not a great dude. The character characterization he did for Ian was pretty funny because I mean it's really hard to imagine being in the head of someone who is like that who makes these awful decisions about like that hurt other people so freely and so but he did it in a comedic way but also so yeah you could still see this is a really Mm. he's the guy at the beginning of the book that I expected to be the one to be murdered you know Mm. because they would set him up as this is Mm -hmm. the big jerk this is the one everyone hates. Yeah. And he, I mean, he was murdered. <laughs> yeah, but not yeah. at the beginning. Not at the, he wasn't the first body. Yeah. yeah. There were a lot of misdirections in this book. <laughs> like the question so of many. whether the two murders were connected, which would have made sense mm-hmm. since the characters that were murdered were connected. And yet, ultimately, they weren't. Yeah, the third one wasn't connected. Like, the third body wasn't connected either. No. Although, no. I guess the second murder was because of the third body. Right. The second yeah. murder well, was the, the third body. Yeah, the John killing Ian was so Ian wouldn't dig up the graveyard and find the body of right. the boyfriend. The, the boyfriend that yeah. Penny had killed years yeah. earlier. Yeah, and like the priest, who wasn't a priest, but then was a priest. Yeah, what was that all yeah, about? Yeah, was he actually a yeah, priest? Like he was a priest, and then he, <laughs> he was... He had been a priest. See, that's the part I didn't get, because like he, he kept saying, you know, I'm not really a priest, but he was a priest. And then, and then after the whole f- thing happened, they sent him... Where? To Ireland or something, right? Well, okay. So, to explain it out, he was a priest, and then he got that nun pregnant, and then she committed suicide. There's a lot of suicide in this book. Yeah. There was, yeah. And there were a lot of... It was a little dark sometimes. Yeah, yeah like trigger um, warning, right? Yeah, I mean, seriously. Sure. Yeah, so she committed suicide. They found out, of course, and in not unfamiliar behavior for the church, they decided to cover up that scandal erase all records of him being a priest and just make him go away to Ireland. Where um, he became a doctor or he, he was a doctor, a doctor all along? No, he became a doctor. Okay. He studied and he became a doctor. Okay. 
And then he came back and he still had his dog collar and such. And so he put it on and started acting like he was a priest. Totally normal behavior. And he came well, back because... that's why he seems so suspicious, right? Because right at the beginning of the book when he yeah. showed up, I was thinking, this is going to be the character that they show at the beginning, you think is suspicious, then they're going to take away the suspicion for a while and you're going to forget about him and he'll come up at the end and he'll be the one. You were right. But I wasn't. Well, al- Because almost. that was another misdirection. Yeah. They did another swerve. But yeah. right. And I feel like that was played up exactly for you know fans of the genre who would be like, yeah, yeah this is the guy who ultimately is you're going to forget and then it's going to turn out to be him. Yeah, um, and, it, and it turns out to be him, but not not the him that you're expecting. The him from from the different story, the sort of the the B story, if you want to call it that, right? Like, the, yeah. Then, yeah. And, and again, this is I think where a lot of people who criticize the heavy number of characters and plot lines was. It's just like since it turned out not to be related to the actual thing, that it felt like just one too many things. Mm-hmm. I like the swerve with the priest, uh, not a priest, priest. But I can see why people would criticize it as just being like just a few too many things put into the book. Like there's no way anyone could figure out where this was going from the beginning. No. Yeah. And maybe yeah. that's uh, satisfying for people who are into mm-hmm. into mysteries. Well, uh, you know, maybe I'm not the smartest dude in the world, so I usually haven't figured out the murder and the cozy mystery I'm reading. But I find most mystery writers now aren't really playing fair with a reader. There Mm -hmm. is a style of mystery where you do, epitomized by Ellery Queen, who used to ensure that all the clues were available in the book. And Ellery Queen was two authors writing together. They put a pause in the book where they actually said, okay, that's it. You've got all the clues you need. Mm -hmm. Who did it? And it would run down some of the possible candidates. And then it would play out the rest of the book where they would do the reveal. I really enjoyed those because you could solve it if you were clever enough. And I generally was not. They always had something a little cleverer than what I would have thought. Most other mysteries I read, I don't think that they're playing fair. The number of misdirections are just too dense. And they're deliberately made to confuse you. And, uh, yeah, usually I don't think they even try to make it fair. And this one, I don't think they're... I mean, if someone figured this out while they were reading it, please contact us and let us know. (laughs) We will be very impressed and we will share your story. (laughs) Well, there's just, yeah, there's so much plot that you don't get at the beginning that you need to solve it. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that final bit, there's just no way to have guessed. Although I was wondering, you know, like as I was reading it, it's like, oh, it's it's interesting that it starts right away with a new member for the club and they, you don't really get to hear much about Penny aside from little little bits and stories here and there. And it's like, oh, at the end, it's like, that's why. That makes total sense now. It's kind of cool that like Joyce's first introduction to the the club is Elizabeth sharing the photos of mm-hmm. that crime where the boyfriend kills the girlfriend and it all mm-hmm. comes full circle at the end too, which is the little... <laughs> call back to the very very first couple of pages too yeah i thought that was well done Mm -hmm. so a lot of the book is about the relationships between the characters too and specifically like you mentioned about aging and the uh what what would you call it the unfairness of the aging process maybe (laughs) and as we mentioned there were more than one suicide in the book four suicides four yeah that's a lot. Well, I mean, I'm counting the Penny John as like a, as a suicide, murder-suicide. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But also Bernard's. Bernard and the nun. Yeah. 
Bernard's was a real, that one really threw me. I was not expecting that direction at all. Yeah, especially when it seems like him and Joyce have like a nice little thing going on. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the thing throughout the book, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, this is this going to be a romance? Is this, oh, I don't know. Bernard's pulling away. Like, what's going to happen here? And then when they accuse him of being a murderer, and he's like, no, it's, you know, this here, he explains his story. And then he goes and kills himself. That was like a bit of a gut punch, I have to admit. I was not expecting that in a book that otherwise was pretty light for the most part. Mm. Yeah, and I guess like totally unnecessary to the the plot. Kind of yeah. a cruel thing for Osmond to, to do to mm. Bernard. Yeah, and to Joyce. Yeah. 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 Why that brings to mind a, something I read about Kurt Vonnegut where he said basically you have to totally destroy your characters. And in Vonnegut novels, all his protagonists have the worst of it all the time. So maybe it's something along that line. But yeah, it seemed, well, you could have cut that part out. It would have been okay. Yeah, could have done something else for Joyce to be distracted by during the book without it being that tragic a story. Yeah. Yeah, his whole backstory with like his wife's ashes and the bench and like I, I that was all kind of unnecessary. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it de- it def- definitely didn't fit into the main mystery. But then at the same time, if you only had the main mystery, maybe there wouldn't be much to the book. Like a, a lot of the charm of this book are its little sort of uh, shortcuts and meanders and side stories. And, and a lot of the times, we're we're seeing things through Joyce's words. And Bernard was important to to Joyce, so she was writing about him. And, but yeah, you, you could cut that out. You could you could totally cut out everything about the about the nun and the priest. And it wouldn't uh, affect the main story really right it's just more kind of like i don't know flavor or something yeah. um i feel like the nun and the priest part maybe could uh still work if the well, i mean there's a voice of balance right you need it was a good red herring with a good explanation as to why he was acting as suspiciously as he was so that part worked but bernard's story is more of a here's a tragic doomed kind of romance and then it gets kind of really dark at the end of it yeah with the nun father Mackey thing like he's that character is just another character who has stake in the graveyard you know so that that's important to the that's the plot but the bernard thing well and i guess too there that was part of why bernard was under suspicion at one point because he was so often in the graveyard yeah yeah i don't know it's easy to critique after the fact maybe Maybe it's appropriate for a book with murders to also focus a lot on mortality. Because the characters did that a lot, too. Elizabeth reflecting on her husband and how he would eventually decline mm-hmm. and how she would decline. Was it was it Ibrahim who had a test for himself? No, it was, was Elizabeth, Elizabeth who wrote those questions. Right. Yeah. Would write questions for herself because she was worried about losing her faculties. Yeah. And she'd answer them two weeks later or something, right? Like she'd yeah. write them in her journal. That was really clever. Yeah, that was interesting. I've never actually seen a self-test of your own memory and such described that way before. And I bet, I bet if she noticed her memory slipping, she would have just offed herself. Mm. I would not be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. She seemed like that type of character. If she's not on top, then she wouldn't want to be around. Yeah. It's interesting, too. There was a lot of discussion about that kind of thing, but not really any direction to it. Just kind of musings on it. Kind of go with that what you will. 
I mean, I think, though, for the most part, this book has a positive portrayal of older people, you know, like Mm -hmm. these members of the murder club are very competent, you know, they're not like curmudgeons, they're not dying, they're not sick, they're professionals who are using all their age and the the experience they've acquired to their advantage. Mm -hmm. Back when I worked in outreach, we would visit a lot of seniors homes around the city. And uh, so for many years, I was interacting with a lot of uh, senior citizens in Winnipeg. And there is such a range of personality, skill, you know, experiences Actually, one of the places I worked at, one of the women there was a programmer for IBM back in like the 60s or 70s. She actually had a mini computer in her basement for uh, a long time. And for those who don't know, a mini computer, it's a misleading name. A mini computer is uh, like the size of like six or eight fridges um, sitting in a place. And you have to be they're They're programmed differently than they are now, of course. But she was one of those pioneering uh, computer developers back when IBM was like a new thing in the city here. And she was fascinated by, she would watch webcams of animals. <laughs> oh, good segue. <laughs> she was, she was big into uh, koalas. I think it was. Oh. Yeah. So like just fascinating, so many experiences, so much knowledge. And yeah, it is nice to see that portrayed positively in a book that's easy to neglect, but yeah, we're all heading there. Mm-hmm. Although most of us aren't going to be able to afford afford that kind of retirement village. No, definitely not. No. Just also kind of in keeping with the English tradition of a mystery where the people solving it are all well-to-do and quite relaxed, don't have to worry about their material means. Yeah, a lot of wine, (laughs) wine, wine drinking as well, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if Waitrose was a sponsor. Oh, or M&S. Yeah. (laughs) Do we have more we want to talk about, or do you think we should move on to our next segment? Anyone got final words? No, I feel like we covered it. We did the club justice. Yeah. Would you recommend it? Yeah, I would recommend it for if you're somebody that's not really a big mystery reader, but uh, wants to wants to read something that will entertain you and will make you laugh and smile. I would say, yeah, I, I, I would recommend this to a wide variety of people, I think. It, yeah. Wide appeal. Wide appeal. Less enthusiastic recommendation. I think um, maybe I'm not the demographic for this book, but I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I had a great time reading this, and I heartily recommend it to any mystery lovers out there. Uh, it won't work for everybody. It is longer and uh, maybe more complicated than many other mysteries, but I think it pays off really nicely. And uh, I'm looking forward to more in the series because I want to see these characters again. They were great characters. Okay, so uh, with that, we will move on to our segment called Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? Oh, sure. Yeah, I can. I'll start. Um, Keeping with the elderly and mystery theme, I'm recommending a book called An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good by Helen Turstein. Now, Helen Turstein, you may already know, she uh, writes a series of mysteries starring Inspector Irene Hoos based out of, well, what we would say Gothenburg, but what I discovered, the Swedes pronounce it as Uteberg. Uteberry. Yeah, I know. Mm. It's how they do it over there. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, this this book is um, showing to uh, Dennis and Toby, but it's hard to see uh, on the podcast. It's a very cute little small, almost paperback size, but it's hardcover. And the, and the cover is a cross-stitch pattern that has skull and crossbones along with hearts and things. And what this is is a series of short stories focused on Maud. 
who's the main character. She's described as an, an irascible 88-year-old woman who has no friends, no family, and no tolerance for goofiness. She lives alone in her apartment downtown Utahberry, and uh, she comes across as a sweet little old lady, but she uses that to her advantage because whenever something comes up where the only option seems to be to get rid of an enemy, she has no qualms in doing that. And she's got away with that until a dead body is discovered in her apartment. And this is where Helen Turston's other main character, Inspector Irene Hoos, comes into it because she's the investigator. So mm. um, it's almost like a, a backdoor intro to the series. If you haven't read any of those mysteries, you could read this one, get a sense of the character. And um, yeah, so I think I'm probably signed up for this. An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good by Elaine Turston. Sounds good. Thanks. How does she kill people? Well, uh, spoilers. In the first one, uh, she, she uh, arranges to have a very uh, heavy, large object dropped on them. Oh. And, hmm. and it's funny, but because... Does it, it say Acme on it? <laughs> <laughs> no. And because it's Swedish, it's not this, maybe the same type of humor that we may have seen in the Thursday Murder Club. It's sort of like a little darker or... It's kind of got that Scandinavian where it's not laugh out loud. Like I, she's not a very like likable person. I'll say right here, mm -hmm. uh, Maude. But um, yeah, so very dry kind of. Yeah, you might be kind of yeah. cheering for her by the end because mm -hmm. she doesn't put up with any nonsense. But she's kind of a, a hard one to be won over by. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a book this month. I have a TV show. It is the British game show Taskmaster. Um, not only because it's wonderful, because it's first where I came across Richard Osman. Taskmaster has been on for many, many years, and each season features five comedians. And in each episode, they're given a series of tasks, and the person to do it the best, according to the host, gets the most points. And these are like really harmless, fun tasks. This isn't like Fear Factor or Survivor. So I just pulled up some tasks to give you an idea of the things they do on the show. So they've been asked to um, paint the best picture of a horse whilst riding on a horse, <laughs> make a coconut look like a businessman. Put something on your face that looks like a mustache from a distance, but isn't. Do the most preposterous thing with a chickpea. Conceal a pineapple on your person. Um, so it's great fun. Very easy watching. There's two hosts, Greg Davies and Alex Horn. Um, Greg Davies is the taskmaster and Alex Horn is his assistant. They're both comedians. They have this great banter. And Richard Osman was on season two of um, the show. There's currently 16 seasons. They're all available on YouTube, so it's very accessible. I've watched about seven seasons by now, and I'm already sad for the day when I run out of Taskmaster to watch because it is, it is truly delightful. That sounds really fun. Yeah, highly yeah. recommend. Highly. Mm. I have got two recommendations because my first recommendation is going to be hard to find. My first recommendation is the Mrs. Polyfax series of novels by Dorothy Gilman. This series follows Emily Polyfax, an elderly widow who has become bored with life. In the first book in the series, she decides to take a leap and applies for a job as a spy for the CIA. Due to a slight confusion on the part of the CIA, she is immediately selected for what is supposed to be an easy mission picking up a package in Mexico, but which ends up with her captured and facing possible torture in Albania. Mrs. Polyfax proves surprisingly resourceful and manages to outwit her foes and save the day. The books have both comedic and suspenseful elements. 
The first book, The Unexpected Mrs. Polyfax, was first published in 1966, and the last in the series was published in 2000, but Winnipeg Public Library no longer carries any of them. So it's probably going to be a challenge to find, maybe used bookstores or something to that effect. There have been two movies based on the series. The first, Mrs. Polyfax, Spy, starred Rosalind Russell in 1971, and the second, The Unexpected Mrs. Polyfax, starred Angela Lansbury in 1999. But my second recommendation, which you will be able to find at WPL, is By Book or By Crook by Eva Gates, the first book in the Lighthouse Library Mysteries. I'm mainly recommending it because it's the cozy mystery series I've been reading off and on for the past several months. The protagonist, Lucy, has left her job at the Harvard Library and her life in Boston to escape unwelcome social entanglements, ends up working at a library built into a lighthouse in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, hoping that life will be simpler. And it is, until a rare book is stolen from their collection, and then there is a murder. It's a fun, lighthearted series that doesn't take itself too seriously, and it has a cat. (laughs) So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panel digs into linguistic mysteries, or at least points of interest. I feel like you have a better one, so I'm going to go first, and then we can, you know, well, lead we'll, up. We'll, see, we'll see at the end. <laughs> lead up to right? yours. Yeah. Um, so my word this month is grass, um, which is not referring to the green stuff on people's lawn, um, but as it's used in this novel, as in grassed on. Uh, which is not an expression I was familiar with, but it's easy to figure out what it means in the context of this book, to snitch, to snitch on someone. So this is British slang. Um, I know like the terms rat and mole are squealed on, but I've never heard grass used in this way. So I looked it up. And as with a lot of etymology, the origin is debatable. Some say it can be traced to the expression snake in the grass, Mm -hmm. uh, which derives from the writings of Virgil, has a similar meaning. Um, An alternative claim is made for the term originating from rhyming slang. So grasshopper, hopper rhymes with copper or police. So grass or grasser tells the copper, which, I mean, it doesn't rhyme when I say it, but maybe if you're British, it does. (laughs) Um, So that is my word, grass. Ah, Hmm. Cool. My word this uh, month is uh, asinine. And it's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've all heard it. We've all probably used it. We know what, we all know what it means. Foolish, unintelligent, or silly. But where does it come from? Like most of our words, you can trace it back to the Latin asininus, which is based on asinus. I get to say ass a lot in this little <laughs> second, which is a donkey. So um, the specific origin of this word remains unknown and unrecorded, but there's ample evidence that it derives from a lost pre-Roman language based on its resemblance to other Eurasian words for donkey, or specifically a female donkey, such as the ancient Greek onos, etc. So, asinus has a base ass, which is donkey, which led me on a bit of a rabbit hole the other day to a donkey sanctuary website, which is in England, and it's a, it's a place that has been set up to uh, rescue donkeys who are either being mistreated or are maybe too elderly to perform their duties, or are are too nasty to be around other donkeys. And this website, which I will I could put into the into the notes, uh, I spent a fair amount of time on because it has web cameras on different parts of the facility, and you can just dial those up in real time, and you can watch donkeys just being themselves. Or you might get stuck with a, a field with no donkeys in it. 
because sometimes that's just the way webcams work. And I was so excited by this find, I immediately emailed Dennis <laughs> and Toby, and I got zero response. The other thing I found out about this website is that it has uh, lots of information about donkeys. And so uh, I prepared for you both questions. You can ask me anything off of here, any question about a donkey, and I will provide you the answer that was provided by uh, the website. So feel free. Any question you know you want, uh, just take your... This is really fixed, huh? Like, you're giving us questions yeah, to, no, you know, to I, ask I, you. I, you. It's, it's yeah. like a press conference <laughs> with pre-approved questions. Yeah, yeah. if you... Uh, I want to okay. go, 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 go off script. Question for Trevor? Question? Yes, question? yes, go ahead. Are donkeys colorblind? No, donkeys aren't colorblind, but they do have different vision than us humans. Donkeys, like all equines, are dichromatic, meaning they have a two-color vision. It is likely that donkeys can see blue and green, but cannot distinguish red. This means that a juicy red apple would look green to a donkey, but just as delicious. Oh, related related follow-up questions. Mm. Do donkeys eat bananas and other fruits <laughs> if they can't tell what color the fruits are? Yes. Donkeys love fruit, but it should be fed to them in moderation. They are a worthwhile addition to the normal food ration in winter and early spring when fresh grass is not available. Avoid feeding potatoes, anything from the brassica family, onions, leeks, garlic, stoned fruit, and anything old, fermented, or moldy, as these are toxic to donkeys and to humans, too, I would suppose. Carrots, apples, bananas, pears, turnips, and Swedes are all safe and usually very popular with donkeys. I don't know what that means. It's a rutabaga. Is it? Or a turnip. I learned this on Taskmaster. It's what British people call <laughs> okay. turnips. I thought it was going to tie into my yeah. elderly lady up to no good. Uh, <laughs> Swedes ensure that chop- chopped fruit and vegetables are cut in a way that minimizes choking risks, such as in sticks. Uh, um, Toby, are donkeys Toby, smart? Do you have any are questions? donkeys smart? Uh, one moment. <laughs> yes, donkeys are very intelligent. They have a good memory and excellent ability to learn. In fact, according to a study released in 2013, we found out that donkeys in some situations can learn and problem solve as quickly as dogs and dolphins. The more things a donkey learns, the faster they get at learning things in the future. Donkeys also remember both good and bad experiences for a long time and can even remember people's faces if they're in contact with them for a lengthy period. All donkeys are individuals, and some have better learning abilities than others due to their characters. I have to say, based on that, the way Gordon Ramsay would use donkey as an insult mm-hmm. for an per- incapable person makes me think he's on the wrong track. Yeah, there. I know. I learned so many things about donkeys. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if anyone has any other questions, but I'm happy to answer them. Uh, I think we probably had, probably <laughs> killed this bit. But uh, anyway, asinine is my word, which led to this lovely donkey uh, segment. <laughs> Oh, I have one more. I just want to say, um, they mentioned how it could come from a female donkey. Do you know what a female donkey is called? No. Uh, A mare Hmm. or a jenny or, um, no, this is wrong. A molly is a term for a female mule. Hmm. And a mule is a donkey and a horse who uh, have relations Mm -hmm. and then produce an uh, offspring. Right. 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 Anyway, that's all I got. Hmm. Always learning something new. (laughs) So my nerd phrase for this month is subvocal oscillations. And if you have heard this phrase before, it's probably because you've heard the poem Ode to Spot, as recited by Lieutenant Commander Data on Star Trek The Next Generation. Spot was Data's cat. And when I googled the phrase, that's the only place or the only links that came up. So I will now recite the poem in its entirety. 
Felis catus is your taxonomic nomenclature, an endothermic quadruped carnivorous by nature. Your visual, olfactory, and auditory senses contribute to your hunting skills and natural defenses. I find myself intrigued by your subvocal oscillations, a singular development of cat communications, that obviates your basic hedonistic predilection for a rhythmic stroking of your fur to demonstrate affection. A tail is quite essential for your acrobatic talents. You would not be so agile if you lacked its counterbalance, and when not being utilized to aid in locomotion, it often serves to illustrate the state of your emotion. Oh, spot the complex levels of behavior you display, connote a fairly well-developed cognitive array, and though you are not sentient spot and do not comprehend, I nonetheless consider you my true and valued friend. So I have to quickly say, uh, data was wrong and cats are sentient and, uh, they do understand friendship. But other than that, the poem is one of my favorites. Subvocal oscillations, as referred to in the poem, is referring to purring, hmm. a wonderful sound that cats make when they're happy or to soothe themselves when they are scared or upset. And it often happens when you pet them. My wife and I were cat-sitting for a co-worker recently. Uh, we had lost our own cat back in January, so it was wonderful to have a cat in the house again. There is nothing like, after a rough day of work, coming home and having the cat jump into your lap and purr while you pet it. Subvocal oscillations. Uh. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Half a Yellow Sun, by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Half a Yellow Sun recreates a seminal moment in modern African history, Biafra's impassioned struggle to establish an independent republic in Nigeria in the 1960s and the chilling violence that followed. With astonishing empathy and the effortless grace of a natural storyteller, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie weaves together the lives of three characters swept up in the turbulence of the decade. 13-year-old Ugu is employed as a houseboy for a university professor full of revolutionary zeal. Olana is the professor's beautiful mistress who has abandoned her life of privilege in Lagos for a dusty university town and the charisma of her new lover. And Richard is a shy young Englishman in thrall to Olana's twin sister, an enigmatic figure who refuses to belong to anyone. As Nigerian troops advance and the three must run for their lives, their ideals are severely tested, as are their loyalties to one another. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. is a rutabaga i had to confirm that that's awesome yeah something i learned from taskmaster why would they not say rutabaga it's such a great word yeah it's true it's got rhythm it's got style yeah yeah it's a good word makes it sound like a sound an old vehicle would make when starting up really (laughs) (laughs) it's like also aubergine they say aubergine right now what's that that's like a plant oh oh okay yeah
Sometimes when you look at like British um, cookbooks, they use terms that kind of throw you off a bit. I remember mm-hmm. like Jamie Oliver. That's the first time I ever heard of scallions being oh, yeah. green onions. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. that's maybe that's more common than the others. But I had to. I didn't know what he was going for there. You know, what I just found out recently. Like in Scotland, they talk about the midges all the time. Mm. Noceums. They're midges. Oh, okay. We just call them noceums here typically because you don't see them. So no see them, but it's a nickname, and the proper term is midge. I don't know what the, what that is. Those little, little tiny bugs. Like if you're out for a walk sometimes and you get like a uh, cloud of yeah. tiny little bugs and yeah. they're in your face, those are midges or no oh, okay. But they don't bite, do they? Not the ones here. Yeah. I don't know if the ones in Scotland do because when I see videos of Scottish people going out and enjoying the wilderness and stuff, they're always complaining about the midges. Mm. And I'm not sure if it's just because they keep getting in your nose and stuff or if they bite. Maybe they're slightly different. Yeah, like they yeah. might be a little more aggressive. But I didn't. I never made the connection between midges and noceums. Mm. I've never heard noceum. Really? I've never oh, heard really? that word. Yeah. Are you an outdoorsy person? Do you camp? No. No? Okay, that might be why. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. That's where I heard it when I was camping. 